Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today's episode features a debate that was recorded live at our festival, How the Light Gets In, last September. If you want to experience more of our content live, you can join us in person or online at our next festival this June. Check out the link in the show notes for more information and how to book your tickets. The idea of the brain as a computer is everywhere. It's a metaphor that has led some to believe that in the future they'll be uploaded to the digital ether. Yet researchers argue that our biology is anything but algorithmic. So are we onto something by holding on to this metaphor? Or is it a profound mistake to imagine the organic can be reduced to the technological? Joining us to get to grips with the concept of a mind, our senior economist editor and author, Kenneth Kukier, world-leading ethics, technology and AI expert, Joanna Bryson, and psychedelic philosopher, Peter Shostek Hughes. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Mark Salter. Is our attraction to the idea that the brain is a computer is just a byproduct of uh, you know, modern technology? Might we find a better metaphor that can lead us to a new way of thinking about this whole subject? Indeed, is there something about computers that has actually found something fundamentally the same as that of a computer? Or is it really actually makes no difference whatsoever? It's a profound mistake to think that technology will ever explain something as complex as the human mind. Today we have three speakers who come, I think, from a very refreshing triangulation of differences of view on this subject. Sitting on my left, Kenneth Kukia. Uh, he's a writer, journalist, and a regular contributor to The Economist newspaper. He's very, very well known for those subjects and also for his most recent book, Big Data, a revolution that will transform how we work, live, and think, which he's co-authored with his colleague, Victor um, Meyer-Schoenberg. On my near left is Joanna Bryson, who is a professor of ethics and technology at the Hertie School in Berlin, and is a founding member of the Digital Center for Governance. <laughs> no, the Center for Digital Sorry, Governance. The Center, <laughs> Center for Digital Governance. Please yes. forgive me, Joanna. Yeah. And uh, she's a regular advisor to various NGOs, governments, and transnational agencies. And uh, she's recently been nominated by Germany as one of nine people to take part in a global partnership for artificial intelligence. Peter Schuerstedt-Hughes is a philosopher, the philosopher of the mind, who specializes in the work of Whitehead, Nietzsche, and Spinoza. He's the author of Pneumonatics. Uh, he's done a TED talk on the psychedelics of consciousness. And believe it or not, he's the inspiration for a Marvel character. So, should we think of the brain as a computer? Joanna. Right, okay. Well, thanks for having me here. 
My, my gut reaction, because I was a professional programmer, my PhD is in the systems engineering of artificial intelligence, and so when I think of a computer, I think of an artifact that's made out of metal and plastic and, and you know, has certain properties. No, a brain is nothing like that. On the other hand, does a brain compute? Absolutely. So it's constrained by the laws of computation. That what, what is uncomputable, what is unknowable, all computation takes time, space, and energy. That's why we don't just spontaneously know everything. That's why you can't just memorize a phone book. Of course, a mechanical computer can memorize a phone book, right? So, that, so there are enormous differences, and if you're trying to compare a brain to a computer, you're likely to get into trouble. And the main one that I like to uh, harp on about a great deal is that uh, with uh, artifacts, with artificial intelligence, that definitionally there's a designer, there's someone human that's accountable for uh, the existence and the operation of the system. But another part, if we're gonna talk about transhumanism, if we're gonna talk about whole brain uploading, even if you could take a snapshot of what's going on in your brain right now, which is probably just intractably hard, but even if you could, it, in the next nanosecond fractional thing, it would be going another direction because it would have a whole different set of constraints if you're talking about, again, a mechanical physical computer. If you're talking about a biological computer, if you somehow totally replicate the brain, you would also need to clone the organism, and we've already made that illegal, at least in the EU. I don't know if it's still illegal in Britain or not. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Kennedy. Uh, it's such a great topic. Um, I think we need to step back and remember how we got to this idea, because it's almost a, a historical, laughable irony that we're having a panel asking ourselves whether the brain is like a computer, because before there was a computer, we didn't know how to actually create a quote-unquote thinking machine, and we needed to model it off of something. And what we chose, weaving the project of humanity, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and then the 50s when we started really building them, was the computer, excuse me, was the mind. So the reason why we absolutely have a computer that looks and has the same modeling functionality as a, as a human brain is because it was a deliberate attempt to the degree that in the 1940s, Johnny von Neumann wrote a, uh, gave a lecture that then became a book called The Brain and the Computer. And the point of um, uh, Norbert Weiner, uh, uh, cybernetics, was the point to build a machine that mirrored the functionality of human thinking. Now think about it, we have memory, we buy our computers based on memory, and we have a processor. The memory is like human, is the memory, and the processor is the function of cognition, of logic or reason. But if you think about the limitations of it, it's a great model, it's very useful for us to use, but there's a limitation, and that is the mental model of a human being, framing. In fact, not only have I written a book called Big Data, but I have a new book out called Framers, and it's the limitations of AI and the importance and power of human mental models, because AI can actually process data very well, but humans do something that's more important, which is we can see what isn't there. If there isn't any data, we can conjure it up through our understanding of causality, counterfactual reasoning, and constraints to actually envision a world, an alternative reality, such as what would it be like to orbit the Earth and therefore have a spacecraft return to Earth? We've never done it before, but we can actually generate that model in our minds to do so. AI cannot do that. It cannot generate mental models nor change them. We do this all the time. And so, yes, it is a metaphor. It's an imperfect one. It is a deliberate one. 
and human beings are more important than the machine. Peter. <clears throat> okay, well, should we think of the brain as a computer, I'm just going to be say no. Um, interesting, uh, I've got a spiel here, I'm just going to take my side now, as you mentioned, uh, this form of technology. It was, um, I believe, Leibniz, uh, who died around 1716, he, he invented a calculator, I believe. I mean, he, he theoretically, he never created it. But Leibniz is um, well known for um, a thought experiment in his monadology called Leibniz's Mill, which is this, that, um, you know, imagine there's a mill or a factory, you go inside it and you see how it operates, you see the levers pulling and so on, you see all of that computation, as a way, it doesn't use the word, of course. Um, nowhere will you see perception, he writes, nowhere will you see consciousness. And um, so this Leibniz's Mill, this thought experiment has evolved over the years and late, lately it's been called more or less the hard problem of consciousness, as you've probably heard, or the explanatory gap, or there's a number of names for it. Essentially, it's the mind-matter mystery. How do we get mind uh, from matter? How does, um, how do we get emotions from meat, essentially? And um, <clears throat> one of the reasons we don't have an answer, I believe, to this question is because we do not understand matter properly. properly. If, you look at our, um, if you look at the evolution of the concept of matter, it has changed profoundly. I mean, if we start with Descartes, you see matter as pure extension, pure geometry. Then we add force, and then we add spin, charge, and so on, you know? And um, we should not think that we are now at the ideal limit where we understand what matter is. I mean, different physicists disagree as to what matter is. And uh, if you use, look at something in philosophy called pessimistic induction, we should think that the level where science is now, as it's always changing, it will continue to change. You know, probably we'll laugh at our science in a few hundred years now. So we don't understand what matter is. We don't understand, therefore, uh, the matter of the brain, because we don't understand matter. What matter is is an abstraction. Um, we understand parts of it. We understand spin, charge, and so on. Um, there are other parts we don't understand. We're learning more and more about it. We don't understand what that is, so matter is an abstraction. Computing is a further abstraction. So we're taking from the activity of matter of the brain um, a certain activity that we can compute. In other words, turn into binary and so on, if you go with the Church-Turing uh, model of the computer. So because we don't know how the brain, of course the, not all of the brain is involved with consciousness, but those parts that are, we can correlate consciousness obviously to the brain, but of course correlation presents rather than explains the answer. You know, why do, does mind correlate to this activity? We don't know if the brain is a sufficient or a necessary condition for consciousness. So therefore, um, computing is an abstraction, uh, mass is an abstraction, so we just don't know enough about the brain, we don't know enough about matter to say that the brain is a computer. Okay. Can, can we start fighting yet, or do we have to wait for another question? No, 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 no. We, can, we can start fighting any second now, but I'd like to actually draw where the, the rings are, and you can be in the blue corner, you can be in the red corner. Now, what it boils down to is this. We're talking about creating a model of the brain, or the mind, and the brain, as I understand it, actually, is the, the storage organ for the mind. What would a model of the mind look like if it was actually going to be useful for this conversation? Okay. Uh, okay, I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to fight with my two colleagues and then come back to it. Okay, okay? as long as you promise <laughs> yeah, you will. I'm all okay. right. Yeah. All right. So uh, who knows what the mind is, but I can talk a lot about consciousness and brains and things like that and computers. I well, know a lot of somewhere. all those things, right? Well, well, well this how, I'll, how, I will get how there. How do you distinguish mind get, and consciousness? I'll get, yeah, that's a really good point. Let's come back to that. I'll come back to that first. I just, this is a smaller thing, but I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to disagree with your book. I guess I better read it. But, but yeah, <laughs> that, that you, absolutely in artificial intelligence, we do do the kinds of thing the brain does. So people don't realize this, but an awful lot of how we can see, there's so little information here. 
you think, you see this room and you see all this richness, you see these people, you kind of have ideas about who they might be because of other people you've known before, that's all prior expectation that you've brought in. You've got this enormous amount of information. A little tiny baby has also an enormous amount of information that, that some of it's genetic, some of it's experience in the womb, but basically nothing like your perceptual experience. It takes a long time to be able to tell how far away things are and stuff like that. You learn a lot. Computers are like that. We do have generative models. We bring a lot of information in now and we create a lot of, you know, like this, these, uh, these language models that are building like nonsense things that look locally like they're telling you a story, but eventually they're going nowhere. That's not because they, they can't do prediction and they're not using existing data. It's because they don't have lives like us. It's, it's nothing like an ape. So the, 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 the basic computational processes are very similar. What's different is the context, the context of a human life. And so I agree with you about humans being very precious. There's nothing more important to us than keeping our species alive, although that entails being able to keep the rest of the world sustainable, yes. <laughs> right? But all of our justice is set up around you know, the, the, the human rights and, and, and keeping people alive. But to come back to, uh, so that's what I thought was wrong with what you said. <laughs> what I thought was wrong uh -oh. with what <laughs> Peter said was that um, I, I, I don't like these arguments about, oh, we just don't understand it because we can't, there's something missing, whatever. I actually think a lot of why we don't understand consciousness um, or we believe we don't understand consciousness at the same time we kind of believe we understand physics and like, you know, you know that thing about like bicycles that if you spin it, what's it called, torque? You know, so when the wheels are spinning, you're much like, less likely to fall over than if the wheels aren't spinning. There's a physics thing. Sure. You know, nobody really understands. Can you understand like what, how a force is keeping your bike going? Like gyroscopes are like that too in tops, right? But we don't feel like that's an enormous mystery. And then you say, oh, consciousness, mind, it's an enormous mystery. It's an enor enormous mystery why if I look out there and I see yellow flags and green grass and you look out there and maybe you're seeing green when you see the yellow, and, and you're seeing yellow when you see the green, and we just don't know, and that's qualia, right? That's consciousness or something, right? But, yeah, exactly. But the point is, no, the, the, the simplest explanation is that it's the, this is the experience of seeing green and yellow, right? This, and, and it is a little different. It depends on your language, what, what, what categories you have and what you can discriminate. So how many language words, how many color words you have affects where you can perceive the differences between colors. So it is a part of your culture. So it all anyway. depends on the data that's in that huge data, yeah. genetic or experiential. Great. So now, let's I'm, get back, I'm basically let's saying get back well, to the point. Can okay. no, can no, we no use, it doesn't. But I'd love to take the original but, question, okay. actually, which is this. No. Can we use that vast store of knowledge, genetic, experiential, to actually say something useful as a model of how that is different from one brain, mind, to the other? Yes. I mean, what, <laughs> well, um, please tell me how. What would a useful model of the brain look like? Useful is relative to a purpose, so um, you'd have to spe specify the purpose. If we want to talk about um, you know, com computing things, then we could use the model of a computer for the brain. But of course, um, computing is not the same as valuing necessarily. For example, we have emotions values um, that, although there might be a subvening computational base, we um, still don't know that. Coming back to uh, Joanna's point here, it's true that physics, yeah, there are many things, of course, in physics that we do not understand. I mean, in fact, maybe we will never understand it. And as I said, physics changes, so it goes through paradigm shifts, as Kuhn said, or, or, or so on. And there, you know, there's no such thing as physics. There are different physicses, you know, at the fundamental level of space, time, gravity, and so on, a number of dimensions of space, and so on. So um, 
Likewise, we understand prima facie what consciousness is because we have it. I mean, what else could we know more? But, and so I don't disagree with that, but of course, that's <laughs> another question. The question is, what is the relation to what we consider to be consciousness and to matter? This is the mystery. Now, um, yeah, there are mysteries out there in physics, as you say, and in consciousness as well, of course, especially in consciousness. So therefore, you know, we should be humble about it and not think that um, we can just leave it to the side and, and think, therefore, that it's a computer. I mean, it's, we just, we're not there yet. We just can't make that. We're not yet there. So where are we now, Ken? I mean, could you answer that? Sure. George Box, a famous statistician of the 20th century, had a great aphorism, all models are wrong, some are useful. And I think that helps color uh, this debate over the, the computer, the mind, and the idea of the metaphor. It is only a metaphor. It's wholly imperfect, but it has some forms of utility for us to understand first our own minds, but also, more importantly, how to build systems that actually, in this case, are self-learning, like deep learning, that can actually perform the same tasks as human judgment likes to do. But let me go back to the limitations of the computer, because I think it's quite essential, and to sort of uh, to gently take uh, Joanne's wise words, which I agree with, but sort of correct it, because it's the mischaracterization of the book. Okay, um, yes. and the, uh, the book is framing, it's about how we frame different issues, and while computers can do extraordinary things and we embrace artificial intelligence, we think it's extremely good, there are these limitations, and it's interesting to think about what they are. One is causality. Computers and artificial intelligence on its own cannot actually divine a concept of causality, whereas babies can, and we know this from studies. So we know that a dropped object will fall to the ground. We can use eye-tracking motion on children who are as little as three months, six months old, and they will have that expectation of things falling as well. So computers would not know inherently know that that would happen, but gravity is a function of our body. The second, however, is more important, and that's counterfactuals. For example, what is a counterfactual? Bob wanted to be king. He went to get the arsenic. Makes sense to me. I read Shakespeare. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's cute. I mean, the point is that, it, that, that he's, he's knocking off his brother, right? But you have to infer that based on information that you don't have, not the information you've been given. Human beings do this implicitly. However, machines would have absolutely no way to begin to understand that. Okay. I, I, okay. I'm going to totally disagree again. <laughs> yeah. Coming back, let's come back. I'll start this time with Peter. The, if, if you're going to define consciousness of every, as everything that we have access to, so that, so, and I heard this done yesterday too, I, I, I don't know if there's a name for that definition, but if you're saying access that's consciousness. access consciousness, okay. So I have heard of that before, I didn't know that's what they were talking about. Okay, so if, if consciousness is just exactly what you know and therefore you're going to go Cartesian and say therefore that's the one thing I know that there is, is what I have access to. Um, look, there's this thing in computers, it's called random access memory. A computer can, any computer program, if you choose to write it as such, can access any part of its own memory, including its complete program, which we humans cannot. So by that definition, computers are more conscious than humans. It drives me crazy to use this kind of definition, but that is one of the available definitions. Well, that, that misses right? out consciousness, though. I mean, it's, well, no, it doesn't. When it, you, you say, when you access, access well, I mean that, um, when I say, I mean, one form of consciousness, uh, the self, as it were, has access to another form of consciousness perception. So we distinguish it. But of course, the important thing is that random access memory is not conscious. It is just circuitry. It's not, it's not aware. What? It's not Why? So you're defining it as not conscious. But look, if, 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 if consciousness is self-knowledge and things like that, then it's easy to build into a computer. So you, th nothing. you think random access memory is conscious? 
it depends on how you define the yeah. term, but it's not. <laughs> but but well, I would say what, what, what about I would causality? Call, what I would call okay, yes, I'll come back to that. You're right. That what I would call a conscious and a robot is actually if you have two, you it's not you don't it's not useful to call it conscious unless you also have the unconscious. So when you talked about okay, the, okay. the the um, the perception, then yes, then you have two separate maps, and you're using the abstracted the box abstraction of a model. And then you, the conscious model is the highly abstracted one that you use for negotiations and doing uh, uh, high abstraction levels. Again, easy to build, easy to model, doesn't make it a moral patient, not, not a big deal. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, no, but we can, the thing, I actually literally worked on that thing about the gravity and the Bruce Hood. I was working with, with uh, Mark Hauser on that and modeling that stuff. Again, yes, little babies and monkeys, if you have these tubes and you're dropping food down them, right? And you can have a tube connecting, so there's little doors and there's these tubes. The monkeys and the children, they'll never figure out that they should go to where the tube took it. They think it's gonna fall straight down. If you have it on a computer, if you have it on the level, or if you have a computer game, they get it immediately. They learn about the tube. But they have this bias, it's called gravity bias. Guess what, if I have a robot, I can build in gravity bias, or I cannot build in gravity bias. It's authored. That's what AI is. You can choose whether to put those kinds of preconditions in. With humans, we don't get to choose about whether or not we have gravity bias. And with monkeys, we don't get to choose if they have gravity bias. Well, the good news is that we can, well, first, we have to build it in. So we agree that there's this inherent limitation to the computer. And as a metaphor for the mind, it breaks down because it needs the human mind to sort of build in the quote unquote gravity bias. But here's the new interesting thing. We're not stuck with what we have. We can actually change the way we see the world. And by changing the way that we see the world, we come up with different alternatives and therefore better decisions and therefore better outcomes. So there I would actually disagree. If we were, we've long been in a world in which we do presume that we are stuck with the way that we see the world and that's it. But if we accept the fact that we can actually imagine and conjure up alternative realities and we do that in a disciplined and more robust way, I do believe we can solve some of our problems because we are doing a pretty bad job of solving the problems of the world today. So we need to change the way we think, we not only think about them, but we conceptualize them as a first step to actually solving them. Okay, no, I disagree. I think we do a pretty good job of solving problems. So it's good that we focus on the ones we don't solve. So I appreciate that. But secondly, no, it is so much easier to write code and say either have gravity or not have gravity than to, to take a child and say, I mean, yes, you can teach them to pretend there's no gravity, but they won't do a good job at the implicit level they'll expect it. Another thing like this is socialization, right? So this is why we can't have you know, robots that are people and it would break justice. They can't be citizens. You, with, a, with a human, there's nothing you can do to make, uh, to make uh, solitary confinement not torture. Right? Okay, you can have a relatively secure individual that can last there longer or whatever, but basically it's a form of torture to isolate. Same thing for sheep, same thing for guppies. With a robot, there's no reason to build in that kind of thing. So it is exactly the fact that you can break these components apart and that you can author them that makes Joy. AI less important than humans in some sense. My work is actually on ethics, and I spend a lot of time telling people that, that AI is not a moral patient. Right? It is exactly our, our embodiment is a lot of these prior things that we bring in. So that is exactly what it makes, means to be human. Our embodiment is huge. Yeah. Right, right? So that is some of the prior information. It determines what can we perceive, right? We can't perceive like a bee. We can't perceive like a camera. We, but with a, with, a, with, a, with a camera, we could perceive every spectrum of light. Humans and bees see different spectrums. With a robot, we can build it across any spectrum. 
Coming from a different angle, why is our culture so out to lunch on the idea that the computer is an explanation? Why, why are we so obsessed with this idea of you know, the computer as the perfect model, the perfect metaphor? Well, I mean, it's one obvious answer is that it's part of uh, you know, current, our current um, technology. Uh, we used to see the solar system as clockwork in the past when that was, so that's an obvious reason. I think another reason is the very interesting question in sci-fi, see it in Blade Runner and so on, you know, can we make robots or computers conscious? This is a very interesting question. To answer that question, you need to know, again, um, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for consciousness? We do not know that. And um, related to this uh, question, it's, John Searle has got this interesting discussion whereby he says, how could we possibly differentiate between the duplication and the simulation of a sentient being? So there's this classic Turing test, you know. Now, Turing himself was more skeptical about it if you read his papers, but um, the Turing test is that if you, um, you know, what we'd say, call today, email uh, someone or something, and uh, they reply, and you can tell uh, whether it's a computer or not. That computer then has not passed a Turing test. But if you cannot tell the difference, in other words, if AI can reply in a very human way, then that passes the Turing test, and some people believe, therefore, you have duplicated, in other words, recreated consciousness. Searle's point is that that is not good enough. I mean, um, a computer could fully simulate a human being in their responses, but that in itself would not imply that that computer had any form of consciousness. And we must distinguish consciousness from mere unconscious perception, as a camera, camera does and so on. It's a vital distinction. No, I, think I, think I think it's fascinating. I, I agree that's a good characterization of his, of his views, but I want to hear what uh, okay. Joanne says before I disagree <laughs> with it. Okay, yeah, you can do, yeah. No, so, so Searle is just one guy. There's like other guys that think Searle is like uh, almost always wrong, though interestingly so. <laughs> and uh, you, one of you those- mean, You mean Dennett? For example, Dennett, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so basically, Dennett, uh, Dennett, Dennett says that you can't, it's incoherent. This is like what I was trying to do with the green-yellow thing. It's incoherent to say that there might be a zombie that's walking around being exactly like a person and not conscious, that that's incoherent. So why? if you're going why, to define... Why is, it incoherent? why is that incoherent? Because it is the practice of consciousness that is the way by which we negotiate and do things. So there just is no way that you're going to get a perfect No, model. no, no. That's, not necessarily. That's, 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 okay. that's behaviorism. Yeah. No, it's not. Anyway, so the point is, to come back to your question. Dennett, uh, I should obsession. say Dennett was the student of Gilbert Ryle, That's the true. soft behaviorist. And, and, and really, Dennett's work is a continuation of that. I, 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 I strongly suggest you guys read uh, Elbow Room and then decide who's right. OK, but anyway, uh, so the obsession with computers, I think, is because of our fear of death. And if we have this mistaken belief that computers have something to do with math, Math is actually an abstraction, it's perfect, it's eternal, and it's not real. It can't do anything, it can't alter the world, right? Computation is a physical process. And people think that, oh, if only I got rid of my emotions, I could do you know, more rational things, and, and I would live forever. It's just false. There's no devices. It's, who here in the room has a, has a device with, work, with working parts that's 80 years old? Yeah. Some of us might have a watch or a clock or something, but almost not. That the computer formats last on average five years. The idea that you're going to upload your mind to something and it's going to last longer than an ape, forget it. <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think that there, that's intriguing, and I think there's probably something to that, this idea that we like the machine, that which is outside of us, because of our mortality 
and this is sort of an embodiment of an institution, although as an artifact that outlives us. I, I think there is something to that. But I think there's a more fundamental answer to your question, which is humanity, we've always loved to compare ourselves to the, to the inanimate and to sort of try to understand the distinctions between where we exceed and where we fail. The ancient Greeks had this idea of the myth of the phallos, the sort of um, robot that was created, an early robot from, from I guess it would be about uh, 3,000 years ago, um, that could actually um, be better than the weaver and play lute better than the best lute maker. And the golem, in, in Jewish mysticism is part of that same tradition. So I think we love the machine because we know in our hearts that, it, that it's, a it's a competition and in certain instances it's beating us. And we love to see where it beats us and we love to actually express ourselves the Nietzschean will to power that in fact we are still the masters and not its servant. Can I take this point further forward then? Because you seem to be drilling down to the idea of anthropomorphization as an essence <laughs> computers. Could you program a computer to anthropomorphize? Um, I think you can get closer. And I worry about the extent to which we have done this because we do fool people. This comes back a little to the point that was just made. I think part of the, another part of the reason, uh, going further from, from what Ken was just saying, that we over-identify with computers now is because they use language. And for a long time, we justified uh, killing people by dehumanizing them and calling them barbarians. Barbarian is literally people who don't speak the same language as me. Um, and we ate animals that didn't talk, you know, more often than we ate animals that did talk. Um, so I, I think that we're, we are, again, this, at this implicit level, we're so social, we're so set up to become sort of a, a crowd computing machine that, that when little things trigger us, like even having a robot shaped like a person or a statue shaped like a person makes us behave like there's a person in the room. And so I, I think that kind of thing may be very hazardous to us and may be a vector by which corporations and governments alter social behavior um, in ways that we may not like or maybe that we do like. We may choose to be nudged that way by having herds of other people around us, but I doubt it. Or perhaps we are already being nudged that way. We, yeah, no, that is actually, So, yes. <laughs> So how can this collective wisdom I have in the panel here you know, mitigate against that? To, you know, as it were, encourage human beings to have a much more mature and understanding relationship with this terrifying future that you're suggesting. <laughs> what can we do about it? I, I, my first paper, we suggested that uh, it was called Just an Artifact, and we were trying to get people over these weird, they only over-identify with AI when it's shaped like a person, incidentally. I was in a lab that had loads of different kinds of robots, and, but there was one robot that was exactly shaped like a person that was supposed to become a person, actually. I, I, I tried to do it, too. Uh, so we tried to make this robot person. But anyway, people said, oh, it's unethical to unplug that just because it was shaped like a person. They didn't care about the other ones, which actually worked, and that robot didn't work at the time. Uh, uh, I, but, well, so, I'd say, you know, with the question of ethics, I mean, surely what's, it, what's important with that is um, the agency and the subjectivity of any AI, right? And this comes back again to this question. I mean, at least if we're thinking about the rights of robots as people are beginning to speak about and so on. Um, this is the, the question that comes back to duplication simulation. If a computer is a mere human simulant, um, a replicant, as it were, um, then we, there's really very little reason to accord them any moral agency as I wouldn't to my computer or mobile phone, except as property perhaps. But not in itself, only instrumentally. So again, this question of ethics really comes down to, again, metaphysics or sentience. How do we understand the relation between matter and mind? 
This is crucial. And it so cannot be um, in, explained away. In, in, okay. in, in law, what we want is a body to kick and a soul to damn. And the, the body to kick, of course, exists because the, it's made out of uh, Joanna's you know, plastic and metal, uh, but it doesn't have Peter's soul to damn. I should point I, I, out you don't need a... I mean, I'm not advocating in any way dualism. You know? <laughs> what I'm saying is because we don't understand matter properly, we don't, there might be an intrinsic aspect of sentience within matter. But, that, um, but the computational aspect of the activity of matter... We've got no reason to believe that is it. That Peter, is the taking that one step further forward. Could you imagine a computer program that might generate a psychotic experience or a psychedelic experience for a computer? Uh, for a well, it can it can create one for a human certainly. Well, actually, no, not quite. About but, human computer. but for the computer itself, well, I mean, again, that, that's completely dependent on the question as to whether um, a, a computer or an algorithm or AI in any sense can have sentience. This is the very important question. We, you cannot talk about perception and processing outputs behavior in this sense. There's a much deeper question. Does all of this activity um, make emerge consciousness, or is it correlated or related in any way to sentience? This is the key question. Okay, so, so coming back to Dennett, I would say the one paper you really want to read is one that says why computers can't feel pain, all right? So coming back to the body to kick, who cares if there's a body to kick if you can go out and buy another one, right? That's exactly the same, it's mass manufactured and you've backed everything up, right? So the, the issue is about uh, pain. I, I, I don't, we can, we can, we're already arguing about consciousness, I won't argue about sentience. I wanna come back to this thing about how can we help people get over their, their, their misconceptions. We, in our first paper, we suggested that as people had more of experience with AI, they would get over this. So like with uh, movies, you know, people used to scream and faint because King Kong was on the screen. And now like little kids watch it. They're not afraid of it. Um, can we get, maybe with more experience we'd get over that. Uh, but so far we haven't been seeing that. And I think that's because we've gotten so good at, at our corporations have gotten very good at triggering uh, what, and not with all AI, the vast majority of AI we don't feel hum is human, like, like Google. Great AI, nobody thinks it's a human. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here we have it from Kenneth, Peter, and Joanna. Minds models. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.